God of yesterday and today and yes, tomorrow. We give you thanks that you're always present whenever, wherever, whatever. When floodwaters rise and cover the roads, you take our hands and lead us through. When bullets fly into innocent crowds, you hold our grief and channel our anger. When prejudice and fear and disagreement turn the rest of us back to back, you do not turn your face away, but beckon us in love. Forgive us when we are implements of division rather than instruments of your peace. Forgive us when the ways we apply our minds and spill our stirred emotions generate more heat than light. Forgive us when we lose patience, lose hope, lose the will, give up and throw down and walk away. For you have work for us to do. Yes, there are tears to be wiped, rips to be mended, spills to be mopped, but just as surely there are dawns to be witnessed, silences to be entered, births to be welcomed, grace to be received, whispers to be carefully heard. Help us, O God, to be your people in all our sorrows and struggles and joys, trusting, remaining, reaching, opening. For we pray in the name of Jesus, who in our groping taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Some of you are aware that Lori and I are facilitating a learning experience during the Sunday school hour around the Enneagram, an ancient tool for understanding the human self and personalities that routinely give it expression for good and for ill. Uh, Each of the nine personality types interpreted by this tool has, among other identifying characteristics, a particular communication style Mine, as a nine, is often referred to as epic saga, which is just another way of saying I tend to tell really long stories. Okay, okay, guilty as charged, but it turns out that I'm not alone. While I'm pretty sure that Jeremiah is uh, not a nine, I don't think we share a personality style. He's way too confrontational and dramatic for my comfort level. We, we, we do apparently share a communication style. 
Because he too has a way of going a long way around the block just to make a point. I mean, take this ponderous reading, for example. Uh, Jeremiah gets started with this tale. He runs in place for a long time, just putting a date on the conversation. Who's king here and who is king there and how long each of them has been in office. And then there's a little news bulletin about world affairs followed by an update about his own particular location and circumstance. And and about this time, I can just picture Jeremiah's wife listening in from the back of the room signaling him to, you know, get on with it. Or, I don't know, maybe that's my wife. (laughs) Anyway, get on with it. He finally does, launching into this long and fairly tedious story about a land purchase. It's full of repetition. It's full of arcane legalities and granular details about signatures and witnesses and payment and copies and safety deposit boxes. And Meanwhile... We're all listening to this thinking, and this is relevant and inspiring how? (laughs) Well, I I am aware that this is not the first sermon drawn from the book of Jeremiah that you have recently heard. Travis and Marty have been listening over Jeremiah's shoulder along with you for the past few Sundays, and you've likely heard that Jeremiah wasn't born to be a prophet speaking stern words to the people on behalf of God, but was born instead to be a priest, speaking worshipful words on behalf of the people to God. But God interrupted that trajectory as circumstances within and around Israel shifted and deteriorated and thrust Jeremiah into this unwieldy role. Jeremiah didn't particularly welcome the opportunity, more than once accusing God of doing violence to his comfortable path and innocent, well-meaning soul. In fact, rape is the word Jeremiah uses more than once to describe the way God has treated him. But ultimately, Jeremiah does with himself as God demands, and as this morning's story begins, that vocational obedience has wound Jeremiah up in the king's jail. But Jeremiah, as it turns out, is only the least and the most manageable of the king's problems. There are After all, those shifting geopolitical winds I alluded to, swirling around the people of God. It hadn't been easy to keep up with who the power players were at any given time. Once upon a time, it had been Egypt, who had been then dethroned by the Assyrians. But by this time, Babylon was in the ascendancy, causing Egypt and Assyria to set aside their former jealousies and find common opposing cause. But whoever it was in any of these given seasons, one thing by this time had become 
very and painfully clear. It certainly wasn't Israel. The Hebrew kings were constantly trying to play catch-up, sucking up to whichever team appeared to be carrying the football with the most momentum at the time. We know in our better minds that that strategy is never ultimately successful. And here it only testified to the weakness of character and integrity within. It didn't take a clairvoyant to foresee the devastations that were in store. Like most of the prophets whose writings have been handed down to us in Scripture, Jeremiah hadn't minced words when it came for accounting for the people's collective disintegration. You've been hearing these stories. He called the people faithless whores, cracked vessels that no longer hold water, rotten figs no longer fit to be eaten. When an internal, when a structure's internal supports uh, corrode and corrupt, it isn't long before the whole building collapses in on itself. And Israel, according to Jeremiah, has lost its way and in so doing, lost itself. It's about to be all caving in. Don't go yelling to God about all your troubles, he says. You have your own faithless self to blame for your troubles. You're simply being given tattered sheets for the sorry bed that you now have to sleep in. Oh, and you, your royal stupidness. You deserve the most accountability of all, Jeremiah says to the king. You are supposed to actually lead not cower and cavort and coddle. You as king are supposed to act on this throne as something of a role model, you know? Someone who beckons us people to our better selves. All you do, though, is lick your finger and check the wind and wonder if it might be safer to go this way or that instead of the true way that you've been taught. No real surprise is it that the king turned around and threw him in jail. But then this funny thing happens. As the storm clouds darken and the political lightning tears the sky, as the military floodwaters rise menacingly and creep ever closer to Jerusalem, laying siege to the city, when the whole Jenga tower is about to crash down around them, Jeremiah does something kind of shocking. He invests in the future. Now just think about this a moment. Would you invest your life savings into a company that was bankrupt and closing its doors? I'm not talking about the relatively low-level Chapter 11 that's primarily about reorganization, shaking off debts and creditors so that you can kind of get back on your feet and get on with your business. I'm talking about an enterprise that is literally at the end of its financial rope, so deeply underwater that no infusion of cash is going to save it. Would you knowingly throw your good money after bad? Uh, of course not. But that's what Jeremiah does. Like a hundred-year-old man buying green bananas. 
like a person on death row renewing magazine subscriptions, like a homeowner ordering wallpaper for a crumbling house that's about to be bulldozed against all common sense. Jeremiah buys a field. An imprisoned man purchasing a farm in a besieged and about to fall city. He does it loudly, publicly, in front of witnesses. Everything is done by the book, precisely according to the law, with the paperwork sealed away for the long term. In essence, he invests in a country that at any minute will cease to be a country. When Israel falls, when it no longer has any say about or control over who has what and what belongs to whom, who you were or what you had before that fall become meaningless. All bets are off. Nothing belongs to anyone except the new king in charge whose total authority makes prior deeds, prior bills of sale, titles and abstracts utterly worthless, null, void. For Jeremiah, however, in these few but diminishing days before the fall, this really isn't a business decision. It's a theological one. This isn't about wise investment. It's about putting his money where his faith is. God, he had been insisting, is the source of life. God is the source of life and the source of all hope. The Holy One, not this or that king, is in charge. And as if to sing the words of the old gospel hymn, where he leads me, I will follow. God, says Jeremiah, will lead us back here. This is what the Almighty, the God of Israel, says, according to Jeremiah. Houses, fields, and vineyards will someday again be bought in this land. Jeremiah, quite literally, is betting on the future. We ought to be clear. What Jeremiah was not suggesting is that disaster was going to be averted even though that's clearly what everybody wanted to hear. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. No, that's, that's the kind of stuff that does not come out of Jeremiah's mouth. All hell was, in fact, about to break loose. Take a deep breath, he says. It's about to get bad. The promise was not that bad things weren't going to happen. Not that light would be kept on, but that God would be faithful to God's covenant even on the other side of the darkness. You'll notice that Jeremiah doesn't have anything to say about the particularities of that promised future. We will look in vain for reassurances about when it might happen, or that when it does, everything will simply return to normal. Simply asserted is the divine assurance that this apparent end is not. And this apparent divine abandonment is more than it seems. I have no idea what might be disintegrating in front of your very eyes. 
It might be like it was for Jeremiah, the nation that you have always and simply taken for granted. As though it would just always be there like it has been. It might be your sense of family or order or meaning or self. And if Israel is any example, any of those could very well be the case. Jeremiah wastes no time proffering platitudes or gossamer gladness. Buckle up, he warns instead. The road's rough ahead. And most of what holds us together is about to get rattled and shaken loose. Most. But not all. God says Jeremiah is not finished with us quite yet. Contrary to every shred of reason, let alone business acumen, Jeremiah buys a field. It's very bad business. But it is electrifying, stabilizing faith. The kind, I suspect, that isn't intended for ancient prophets alone. So what is, I wonder, the hope that you and I are being nudged to assert in these fragile days? The honest, not flimsy or glib, deep hope. And what is the field in the midst of it that you are being called against all reason to purchase? Might it be a forgiving word? Might it be a welcoming space? Might it be a commanding, rebutting no to something heinous? Or perhaps an insistent yes to that which is holy and of heaven? Whatever it is, the world and the very Word of God need you just now to weigh out your coins and sign the deed because houses and fields and vineyards will once again be bought in this land. You, says Jeremiah, can bet on it. Let us pray. God of life, you never seem to get weary of wringing life out of death, light out of darkness. In the darkness that from time to time surrounds us, give us the match and nudge us to strike it. That we too might pierce the dark with the flame of light. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.